Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. I'm joined yet again by Dr. Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago and Dr. John Mandrola from Louisville, Kentucky. Gentlemen, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you both. I noticed that when I was traveling, I thought the podcast would continue, but I looked on my feed and I didn't see any new episodes this week. So what gives, John? Where's the episode? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Adam and I talk, but I mean, we're just not pros at uh, the, the, the logistics of it. So you didn't record it or there's a conversation somewhere is what you're saying? We got we got one done without you. And then we oh, got, oh yeah, that's true. We did. Took a week off. Then you took a week off, of course. All right. Well, that's good. Well, I'm back from Europe and the jet lag is finally wearing off. It's good to see you both. John, you want to talk a little bit about Denmark and Europe. Why don't you kick it off? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I was interested in, I was interested in, in your post about Denmark because you know I was, I was there a year before, and uh, I just was struck by the, the differences in culture and differences. I mean, I, I think I may have even said this before, but you know, the thing that I, I was struck with was that uh, a couple colleagues said that they trust their public health leaders and they trust their government, and I was just. It hit me like a bolt, and uh, so, anyways, I, yeah, I, I, I was following your trip, and uh, it was just, it's interesting that I see you more giving lectures in Europe and other places than I do at UCSF. What gives with that? <laughs> well, um, I tabulated last year, and uh, and and John, you're absolutely right. I think in Europe, particularly Northern Europe, they're very sensible. They put the sensible in sensible medicine, so they're very like-minded with the themes of our our substack and, and sort of our show. Um, and, uh, and I think it's true that uh, I really enjoy the European audiences. I mean, I've always enjoyed giving lectures over there, even on cancer drug policy on an evidence-based medicine. I think they're more aligned with common sense. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I think I went through last year and I actually tabulated all the lectures I gave. I think I gave like 40 in-person lectures, like 75 if you add in the Zoom lectures. And many were at other universities like Harvard and USC and UCLA, et cetera. Um, in terms of home stuff, I do do a lot of talks at UCSF, but it's always for medical school interest group, somebody's class. Um, it's for grand, it's for uh, one of the hospital has, they need to discuss in for M&M or, or they want somebody to talk about evidence-based medicine. It's always at the interest of a, a, per, a certain individual but uh, yeah, Grand Rounds, I haven't been asked uh, to go to Grand Rounds in some time to comment on COVID-19 policy. I wonder why. <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, I don't wonder. I know the answer. The answer is that as much as we think we're in an academic environment, people don't really want to have a very broad discussion on these issues. They want to invite people who disagree a little within uh, what they deem as the appropriate ballpark, but they don't want to invite people who disagree a lot. Um, I think that's that's it's actually a tragedy because we're going to talk about the second thing we're going to talk about is chat GPT and journals, but that's part of the reason why podcasts are replacing universities. I listened to just a last thought. I listened to this Tyler Cohen podcast. He invited Amia Srinivasan. Okay, she is a professor at Oxford, radical feminist. He is a conservative, sort of libertarian, right of center, U.S. economist. And in this podcast, they got into it. I mean, he he pushed back on her and they were arguing and she pushed back on him. She she got as good as she, you know, she gave as good as she got. Um, that kind of dialogue, I don't see at universities ever. I don't see it anymore. Maybe when I was a student, I, I would see a little bit more banter. 
now that's all on podcasts. That's where people are having that dialogue and universities have, you know, tepid, boring, uh, frankly, boring. I mean, I, I'm sure if you actually had the statistics on how many people are watching the Zoom in the background while they're eating lunch or going to the bathroom, uh, it's going to be abysmal. Like they, they've lost the audience. So that's my thought. I kind of noticed there's like a semicircle, like a moat of of a, the amount of disagreement that's allowed. And I, I noticed that AHA, American Heart, ACC, some of these big meetings, it just seems like there's like certain amount of disagreement, but you can't really um, question, you know, the status question. You can't really question the core uh, of things. And and I, I don't know. I, I see it as a change maybe in the last five to 10 years, progressively getting less, you know, less friendly with debate. Adam, what do you think? You know, so I agree. But it's strange because, you know, at a university, given there's all the angst about, you know, inviting outside people in, you know, who cause disagreement, but there's such an opportunity for people who are colleagues and know each other and actually can, you know, disagree agreeably on things because they work together and they recognize that they agree on most things um, that... You know, it's strange where so much of this disagreement happens, you know, on podcasts, on Substack, between people who don't actually know each other and don't have that sort of stored up goodwill, where I respect that. But actually, it's actually harder to do than to say, hey, let me and, you know, my colleague down the hall who, you know, we work together and she calls me in to see patients and I call her in to see patients to come and say, listen, you guys disagree on this one thing, you know, can you do a sort of point counterpoint on it? I think it's a really a missed opportunity. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And that kind of leads into the first thing we're gonna talk about. So I'll tell listeners, we're gonna talk about chat GPT. And if we have time, we're gonna talk about early treatment of myeloma as a microcosm for some of the challenges in preventive medicine and EBM. But this is, I think, kind of really related to the first thing. So we'll, we can get into it a little bit. Chat GPT, which is now linked to uh, GPT-4, which is, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's some sort of computer software, uh, uh, a learning language algorithm. But basically, you type at the computer and the computer is formulating the replies and giving it back to you. And a lot of us have played around with it. At first, like everything in technology, I was a huge skeptic. I always say that these technology people are idiots and they're, you know, they only drag me down and they never give me anything of value. Uh, I used it and I had to say, I, you know, I had to eat some of my words, you know, because I asked it simple questions. It started to give me good answers. I asked it, can you draft a thousand word review article on chronic myeloid leukemia? I did it in like 30 seconds. Can you draft a 500 word review article? Can you draft a 5,000 word review article? It, you can just, it can just do it. I ask it to summarize, you know, somebody's autobiography. It does it. Then I started feeding it medical cases. I started feeding it uh, oncology cases that I knew the answer to. It wasn't 100%, but it was as good as a lot of practicing doctors, I think. It's 80%. It wasn't bad. Um, it wasn't exactly how I practice or how I would want to practice. But, you know, again, I'm, you know, on one, one edge of the curve. Um, I also talked to somebody who has an ongoing publication under peer review, so I won't spoil too much of it, but they actually gave it clinical problem-solving questions, and it's actually really, really good. 
Um, I know Adam's played with it, John's played with it. I guess one of the thoughts are, one of the things we're gonna talk about is how do you find it? Um, what are its implications for medicine, the practice of medicine? And then we can talk a little bit about journals and podcasting and things like that, because Adam made a really interesting point about ChatGPT and how it's being covered in journals versus on Substacks. So why don't I start with you, John? You played with it today, then we'll go to Adam. Um, how do you find ChatGPT? I mean, it's not perfect. It's a bullshitter too, but uh, it's not terrible. What do you think? Yeah, I look, I'm I'm, I'm complete novice. I don't want to say too much. I mean, there's, you've already used it more than I have, but like I was just writing, I was writing an article. I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm sort of drafting uh, uh, something up today on, um, on uh, um, CDC and, and, and I, I asked it a question, please tell me the scariest statistics surrounding the obesity problem in the US. And it said, as an AI language model, I don't have emotions, but I can provide you with some concerning statistics. And it lists the statistics. And I'm like, oh, you know, and it, it writes it out. Like if you search Google, Google will just give you the, you know, it might send you to a link and then you'd have to look at the link. And then I just said, can you cite references? And it says, certainly, here are the references. And in five seconds, it comes up with the references, hyperlinks, and they were all pretty close. And so instead of, I, I mean, I'm just, this is just enhanced search engine, but it's so much better in, in getting you in the ballpark of things. And so I, 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 yeah, I'm like you, I'm skeptical by nature, but I really wonder um, uh, how this is going to change things. And of course, I read Tyler Cowen like you, and I read Marginal Revolution, and you know he's basically saying this is like this is the next this might be the printing press revolution, you know. And uh, so, what can we say? Yeah, Adam, thoughts on the software, and then we'll get into implications. Uh, I'm also excited. Um, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by all the people who are submitting things to Sensible Medicine about <laughs> ChatGPT because um, I think everybody's sort of thinking about it. Um, I got to say, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to use it in the future, which is kind of the hard thing for me. Like, I agree, you know, so many of the things I've read about, about what people are doing at it, John, you shared that, you know, questioning about the obesity epidemic, you know, those are such interesting uses for it. Um, I, I'm, I've been on the inpatient service with a medical student and been having a lot of, you know, fun with her doing cases and teaching and, and I tweeted this week because we had a really interesting sort of fluid management case, which is always like one of my favorite. And it was neat to then go back to ChatGPT and sort of present the case to ChatGPT, get a sense of how it would manage the case. And I can say the like, the question like, hey, tell me how to manage this wasn't terribly helpful, but it was really cool the sort of back and forth that I was able to have, you know, with this thing to almost discuss the management of a case. Um, now, I sort of felt like an educator in that, in that position because I was able to say, look, this is what you're going, you're, you're getting wrong, you know, can you fix it? And it immediately fixed it. And as John, you said, it was able to give references. I've heard people like quote that sometimes it gives made up references. I haven't found that at all. Um, but I'm, I, I think it may be very exciting for education because I could imagine that if you could figure out a way to have students sort of present cases and work through cases um, with chat GPT, you know, instead of attending to kind of 
practice um, in that way, I don't know, it might be great. I completely agree. And um, one of the things we we didn't mention that is that from three to four, the 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 jump is so dramatic that one can imagine yeah. at this rate of change, where will they be in eighteen months? Um, I wrote a piece on it for us and I divided into two categories. One is how will it change writing and then how will it change practice? So on the writing aspect, I see that, you know, so much of our day-to-day lives are bogged down in notes. I think you're going to open your Epic chat. GPT has already scripted the whole note. You're going to modify a few sections. Maybe as you start to put in history and physical stuff, it's going to be modifying the plan for you, templating it out for you. And you're just going to have to say, Oh, agree with what it's written. Um, then I started to think, well, why stop there? I mean, notes is just a way to bill, but what you really want is a way to make sense of this huge chart very quickly. I bet ChatGPT will just run in the background and have everybody will have a Wikipedia page, every patient, and it'll just keep writing a two-page summary of every patient in the front. So when I open a chart of somebody I don't know, I can read two pages and I know everything or most everything I'd want to know. Of course, there's a few things I'm going to want to read the primary data. Then I started to think, you know, medical writing. Right now, journals, uh, New England in particular, for trials, many people use a paid medical writer from these companies. That's all going to go away because ChatGPT is going to be the most affordable medical writer you can imagine. And to some degree, it'll democratize the medical writer, which to date has only been afforded by Pfizer and Novartis. Everyone will have a medical writer, which may fundamentally change. And we're going to talk about this in a minute about publishing and what journals are in the business of doing. Um, I see now journals are saying, you know, they're getting a little nervous. Oh, can we allow medical writers like ChatGPT? I was like, you already made that decision 10 years ago when you allowed the companies to get medical writers. So you kind of shot yourself in the foot. Now we have a cheap medical writer and you're going to have to allow it if you want to have any consistency with your prior precedent. So good luck on that. Um, And then the last thing on practice, this is different from Adam's field and probably maybe different from your field, John. Um, I can't speak to, I don't know enough about EP. But um, you guys are often in the diagnostic business. And I think ChatGPT, you know, it's going to do well at that. It's already doing well. Um, Will it ever be as good as a great diagnostician? I don't know. But in oncology, so much of what we do, we have created flowcharts to tell us what to do. We've turned breast cancer into a series of flowcharts. What is the pathology? What is the stage? What is the, you know, all all the molecular markers? And ChatGPT is going to be able to do the work of like 80% of oncologists, I think, very quickly. It's going to be one of the first fields gobbled up. And you're going to have to wonder, I pose this as a thought experiment, if somebody does a randomized trial of oncologists to doctor makes the decision versus doctor plus ChatGPT or ChatGPT and you cannot disagree. And if ChatGPT, you cannot disagree, has an improved overall survival well, we're up shit creek. You know, that really tells you you can take the doctor out, you get better outcomes. And so people will push for that. And so I think it's going to be remarkable. You know, I think the printing press analogy is apt. And um, okay, then. Or, or, and I, what about, what about if it, what about if it's equivalent outcomes and much more cost effective? Yeah. You know? Or you can get an N, yeah, right. NP plus GPT beats expert oncologists and you can deliver care at scale across. It's going to change a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so what I, 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 a couple of comments. One is I'm kind of happy. I'm kind of happy about the writing thing because I'm hoping that chat GPT can't copy me. And, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping that like a, 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 that if you have a writing style that, that is of, of yours and, and it's something that if you write something, someone can say that's not written by chat GPT, that's going to be sort of sticky and, and a value. So I'm 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 actually 
I'm actually glad because as you know, some of the writing in the medical world is just, is just, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's almost like a good example. It's good in that you can show people, you can pull a journal article and say, don't write like that. You know, it's a good (laughs) example of how not to write. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of happy about it. And, and, and the other thing is as far as, you know, fields that are protocol, um, you know, one thing about my field of EP is it's, it's very much not a protocol. Like it's, it's, I mean, with just take atrial fib, everybody knows about AFib. I mean, AFib affects everybody in different, different ways. And so the job that we have is sort of individualizing uh, care to a certain patient. And I don't know that that'll ever be a protocol like breast cancer or whatever. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not too worried about it in, in, in our area. And I like the idea that it's coming with writing, but Adam, thoughts on this before we go to the New England article? I think we're at the stage where it's sort of the first draft, right? Um, it'll be terrific to say, hey, give me the first draft of something, which then I can work on. It'll be terrific as a sort of decision support tool to say, what would you do? And then you sort of think about it in the individual patient or in that patient where you say, listen, I got a differential of three things and mm-hmm if I present you all of the information I'm working with right now, right? Can you broaden out my differential and help me think of things that maybe I'm not thinking about, right? Um, And maybe you can do it automatically by scraping the chart. You don't even tell it anything. And it's like, you open the chart and it's got a differential and you're like, oh, I thought of three of those, but not the other two. And actually, eh, not bad, you know? Like a really good student. I I wonder what what came from this and and was a little bit in our conversation this week. about journals, and this is maybe a little bit off yeah. topic. No, I'm, um, there. I'm, I'm so interested in like what's going to happen to medical journals over the last 10 years. Um, and I was stimulated, you know, not to compliment you, Vinay, because I worry what happens when I compliment <laughs> you. Um, but, you, you know, I read your Substack on ChatGPT, and I read the this week's New England Journal article on ChatGPT. And, you know, they were just you couldn't even compare them, right? Because yours was so much more up to date. Um, And given it was more interesting to me because it was at the level that I was looking to read and the New England Journal thing already seemed behind and also seemed like it was written for, you know, somebody who's accessing it through their MySpace page. (laughs) Um, and 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 it made me think about like, you know, what are journals going to be good at in the future? Um, and what should they almost give up at at this point? Um, because I think for a lot of these thought pieces, certainly, you know, letters to the editor, stuff like that. I mean, they're useless at this point, right? You know, that was, you tweeted that. And it was so profound. And then, you know, I read this New England because I was curious, like, what what are we talking about? And if I were to just, like, I, I'm not trying to, just crap on them to crap on them. But if I were to describe to the listener who hasn't read this piece, I would say it was so, so boring. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just, it was so boring. It was 2000 words. 
first half was gobbledygook. I mean, it was, and who, first of all, who wrote it? It was written by two people at Microsoft, which by the way, they bought ChatGPT for 10 billion. So they kind of got a conflict of interest there. And then the third person was a medical writer, a human, not, they should, they should have gotten ChatGPT to write it because it was so boring. And I didn't understand the first half was all large language learning model, AGI, IGPT, TTDT. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm a doctor. I don't need to, I don't know all this stuff and I don't care. What is it actually able to do? And by the time it got to that, I was already disinterested. And then it, I didn't think it was very creative in thinking about what are the implications of what it can do. So ultimately I was very disappointed. And, and I feel that way about more and more journal articles to Adam's point, which is, you know, on COVID-19, we have to admit journals were absolutely superfluous. There were the preprints and there were the people talking on Twitter and Substack and in the news. And that was how sort of large level policy was shaped. Every so often there was a journal article, but it was just, you know, it could have been a preprint that shaped our thinking instead. Um, so I think Adam is right. I mean, I think it's a really deep question. If I were the editor of a major journal, I would be very worried about what is going to be our role going forward. We've got the preprint server, you know, just carving us up in terms of people getting the first look at data right there. Like the recovery trial is a preprint. You know, by the time the New England Journal paper came out, I was yawning. Um, you know, and so many of these preprints are really good. I mean, you know, because you know the group and you know, you can read the way it's written. Um, some are not perfect, but some journal articles are not perfect. So that's one side. And then the other side is the commentary side. They used to always be, I'd love to read the jam of viewpoints. Now I rarely read a jam of viewpoint that I haven't read, you know, in sub, in not my, our sub stack, anybody's sub stack, somebody's sub stack, somebody's blog, somebody's Twitter thread. So John, what do you think on this? Yeah, yeah, but Vinod, let me before I tell you what I think. Why yeah. don't Why don't I just push back immediately and say, sure. but, but the 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 immediate pushback is going to be, but we need journals to adjudicate science and peer review. I mean, I guess my cynical answer is, yeah, I'd love for them to start, <laughs> um, because I think you know, I don't know, my my bias is, people talk a big deal about peer review, and of course. <laughs> I say it too. Every time I read a shitty article I don't like, I say, where was the peer review on this? But the truth is we all know that peer review is a porous filter. It can catch some very egregious stuff, but it lets a lot of stuff go through. And to some degree, it also provides a false stamp of approval. Remember Surgisphere? That came out in The Lancet. And then of course, it, it wasn't just a little fraudulent, wasn't it? Like a, It was like overwhelmingly fraudulent. It wasn't even compatible with reality. And it was in The Lancet. Um, not to mention their work from a while back about uh, uh, autism disorder and vaccination, which you can read that original paper. It was so terrible. I mean, you don't even have to evoke fraud to know that that's not really good science. And so, I mean, the, the point is journals have always had type one and type two errors. They've failed to publish really impactful science and they publish science that has holes in it. Um, they are imperfect. Many of us like them because that was how we were brought up. Um, now you have preprints. They're also imperfect. They have errors of both kinds, um, but you can read it very quickly. Um, for all the faults, it's up in 10 days for the most part. Uh, and we have commentaries that are happening everywhere. And those used to also just be in journals. You could never run, like our Substack is about medicine. There was no, we, we couldn't have existed 25 years ago because you couldn't find a way to pull this niche audience together. We would have been a journal if we wanted to do this. We would have like launched our own journal. And so, I don't know. I, I guess that's my response is that I don't, I never thought peer review is so great anyway. Yeah. Me, me neither. Um, but, but I'll just tell you that the consent we're going against consensus. Our listeners need to know that there are 
there's a large group of our colleagues who believe that you need you need journals to to protect the public from from bad science. For instance, the problem with a preprint that people will say is that oh, you could put a preprint out, it could get covered or get covered by the the wrong people. You know, a, a, a right wing politician could could tweet out a preprint and that could lead to you know that could lead to trouble. And so that's that's you know I. I'm I'm conflicted about it because, but but John, I, I that can... that will that will happen, but it also will happen for journal articles. Yes. Oh, but is 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 there a middle ground? I mean, so, yeah. you know, I, I'm with you guys. You know, peer review, to a great extent, is broken. Right. <laughs> you, you talk to associate editors, and it kills them trying to get people to peer review. You know, we I assume. You know, each of us gets five to ten requests for peer review you know, every week. You can't do it. People don't spend enough time in it. And for articles which are interesting and affect a lot of people, maybe those are the things that the peer review moves to comment on the on the preprint, right? right. And and journals kind of give up their, oh, we need to have full control over this. And what journals end up doing is saying, Look, our job is going to be to, um, you know, publish something which has been out there in the world, being discussed, being improved for three months, or to publish those things which have such niche audiences that like it can't happen, right? That nobody's going to comment on that on Twitter because nobody cares um, because it affects twelve patients, and it's those, that's very important. If you're one of the twelve patients, that's got to be done. But maybe that's done with more formal peer review. What do you think of that? I mean, I love that idea, which is that, you know, you preprint all your articles, you let the market decide, like the interesting things will get more people reading, you know, yeah, so yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's the marketplace of ideas. And like, if the, if, if the issue is uh, masks, long COVID, vaccine, uh, you know, or IFR, you're going to get 10,000 people read. That's okay. You know, then you're going to get lots of comments. The author can go back in their best due diligence, try to reply, you know, as best they can. And then the journal editor can look and say, you know, there's something here that it's sparking a discussion. We're going to take this and work with the author to bring it to market. And so then the journals have to compete for the articles, not the other way around, um, which is what we've been doing. I mean, I love that idea. And then to your point about, this is the point that, you know, people also say, which is like, well, what if I do an article and, you know, it's just not that interesting. Well, part of me wants to say, stop doing this. Stop doing this work. I mean, so many people are doing these articles and they're like, oh, we're having difficulty finding a reviewer. I was like, yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was boring. You know, like, I don't know why, why did you force the medical student to do that in the summer project and you don't want to do it? I mean, what are we doing here? Yeah. That's, that's part of the problem. Uh, John, let me, uh, let me add, let me add that, that it's not just us saying this. I want our listeners to know that um, in 2015, in uh, Circulation Outcomes, Harlan Crumholz, who was the outgoing editor of Circulation Outcomes, uh, wrote an article called The End of Journals, and you can search it. And, and he said, basically, the journals are facing a crisis. They're, uh, he listed all the problems, right? Too slow, too expensive, too limited, too unreliable, too focused on the wrong metrics, too powerful, too parochial, on, on and on. And so this whole notion that that was what seven eight that was eight years ago. And to be an fair, outgoing... he, he made the preprint server afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, but yeah. Um, the 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 point is the point is well taken. And what we're talking about, we're not you know we're not outliers. So um, I think that 
I think that Chat GPT, um, the democracy of you know blogs, long form, um, the sort of attention economy. I I think it's possible we're on a, we're on a brink of change, which is which is fun. Can we just tie these two issues together? I mean, the first part of this, we talked a little bit about where are debates happening, and the argument was that podcasts are more conducive to those than actually the university grand rounds. And the second part, we talked about where is astute commentary about topical medical issues happening, and we're saying that Substack is more compatible with that than journals. And I think the theme that runs through both of these is that these really established institutions are... I don't want to, I mean, I, I mean, change is inevitable, but I don't want to, and I don't want to scare them, but they're, they're, they're getting their ass beat. I mean, they really are very vulnerable. And I know if I was a university administrator, I know they're not thinking this way. I think they're thinking about, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, they're thinking about, oh, I'm the head of Cleveland Clinic. I want to buy up all the local hospitals so I can funnel people into my trial network. And I want to be, I'm UPMC. I want to run, control all the healthcare in my conglomerate in you know Western Pennsylvania. And they're thinking about money and they're thinking about partnerships with companies and IP and how to make themselves a big thing. They've forgotten that their goal, their, their, the thing that gives them life in society is you are the place to debate ideas and you are giving away that, giving that away while you're trying to build this empire uh, of, of healthcare industrial complex. And that is a very bad trade-off because someday somebody's gonna eat your lunch at the healthcare, they're gonna come and cost cut. And this thing that's really sacred, I think, which is the place to have these kinds of dialogues is, is just being transferred to third parties. And I guess I'm happy because I'm the third party taking it. <laughs> so, I mean, we're taking it, but they're losing something. I don't think they see it. Adam? Yeah, I agree. Oh, and yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I, it's just this little podcast that I do this week in cardiology. Like I'm literally a nobody. I have no academic title. That's not all. true. You're the visiting professor of the Mayo Clinic. I saw you. Yeah. On, so, the, saw, yeah. yeah. So, so how does a, how does a, a nobody practicing in a little community hospital get invited to Mayo Clinic without a podcast, you know, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's it's I, I agree I think long form and I I think Substack and podcast and um, the democracy the meritocracy of ideas you know if your ideas have merit and and uh, they they potentially can rise up I mean obviously it's not a perfect model right there there's some crazies that can that can get attention but it, there's trade-offs with everything Adam thoughts on this no <laughs> I wonder what you, you have said it all. Adam's a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. I mean, he is the he is the academy, right? <laughs> he is. I mean, and uh, I, in, in the good sense. I, I'm gonna, I, yeah, and I mean, maybe I can I can defend it a little bit. I, you yeah. know, uh, places are are different, and um, you know, sure, University of Chicago has its problems, but University of Chicago has been a place which is really a staunch defender of um, debate and freedom of ideas. And, you know, I'm on a listserv at the university of people who their main calling is to make sure that it, you know, continues to be that way. Um, but it takes a lot of effort um, and, you know, to sort of nurture this and maintain it. Um, and Vinay, I mean, you remember from when you were here, you know, a lot of how we teach is these debates 
And I always say when I get into the most trouble on social media is when I bring what I feel like are sort of fun, entertaining debates. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to tweet about this. And you realize that, boy, a lot of the world is not like that. So, you know, it still happens and it's important, but it just takes a lot of work to, to nurture it and maintain it. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that University of Chicago under Rob Zim, what's his name, Zimmer, their former president, um, had put out so many great statements about freedom of thought. And there was a geology professor who got into trouble and they defended him. Um, they've always defended, I think, that idea. But Stanford Law School doesn't. <laughs> Stanford, yeah, University Law, Stanford Chicago, Law School doesn't. <laughs> University of Chicago might be a little bit of sampling error, I guess, for the academy. Yeah. And, and they... It's, it's just a few people that have to be replaced. A new president someday, a new provost, and that thing is dead. I mean, it doesn't take much to knock these institutions down. Believe me, I'll be trying. No, okay. Then the third, okay, the third topic. We got time. Um, I do think the journal question is interesting. I wish, I, and I, I think like, maybe if we're lucky, we should invite Rita uh, or we should invite journal editors and but I guess she's stepping out too. So we need somebody who still has skin in the game to defend uh, what they're doing. Um, but I'm, I think they really should worry. Um, also eyeballs. I mean, just the last thing I'll tell you this, like when I was a fellow, I, my life revolved around the journal. Like I would read every journal when it came out, scroll through the articles. I don't do that anymore. Twitter gives me what I need. You know, I'm getting it from hearing from people, talking to people. Uh, it's not the same for me. All right, third topic. John was asking me about this offline and we thought we'd flesh it out. Um, it was that I keep carping. I keep carping in these sensible medicine essays on multiple myeloma. And John was like, what the hell is going on in multiple myeloma? Explain it to me. Why, why are you so critical of it? Maybe I'll explain real quick and then we can use it as a discussion for all the things that it's like in medicine. Um, yeah, but Vinay, before you right. start, yeah, yeah, you're talking to an electrophysiologist, so you got to keep it. If you are asking Chat GPT, you got to tell the level. So don't <laughs> don't don't get too serious because, yeah, I remember myeloma from medical school, and 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's a good challenge. I mean, I should be able to explain this to two great doctors who aren't in this field. All right, what is myeloma? It's a cancer. It's a cancer of plasma cells. They're growing in the bone marrow and they're, and they're, they're going elsewhere and they're causing problems, both because the cells can cause problems and that they're secreting this monoclonal protein that causes problems. And I think we taught it in med school as you get the crab criteria, like high calcium, renal dysfunction, anemia, or like lytic bone lesions. And multiple myeloma historically was this clonal plasma cell disorder plus end organ damage. That's what it's always been. Maybe about 15 years ago, I mean, long time ago, people noticed that there are people who don't have myeloma who have clonal protein in the blood. And we've called this like monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance. If there's a lot of it, some arbitrary threshold, we call it smoldering myeloma, but it's basically like an asymptomatic pre-cancer condition. You don't got any end organ damage, and typically you have a lower burden of the plasma cell problem. Um, maybe about 15 years ago, there's some elegant research that showed it's an obligate precursor. Like you don't just get myeloma, you always have this precondition first. And we treat myeloma in part because treating prevents further end organ damage, may even reverse it a little bit. And also in part because treating extends survival. We've always wondered, you know, should we take our cancer drugs, which are toxic and have costly and have side effects and also treat these preconditions? And maybe in the 1990s, they tried in three randomized studies to use the drugs of that time. 
and all three failed to improve survival, so they were abandoned. But of course, then we had new drugs and our drugs were having so many drugs and we're adding the drugs. They cost $600,000 per year of treatment, $800,000 per year of treatment. Like we're reaching new pinnacles. And so once again, in the last 10 years, enthusiasm is there to let's try testing early. We launched a couple of studies. One is like a super underpowered phase two study with like tons of problems, like the control arm, it's only done in Spain. The control arm is getting, you know, subpar staging and subpar treatment at progression. Um, it's, it's practically useless for the US. There's a US study that was looking really interesting, but then the authors just put everybody on treatment when they had an early signal of efficacy. So they've kind of polluted their own study. And so we've got this like massive uncertainty, which is, for these people with the precondition, which are much more than the people with the cancer, and some of whom will progress to the cancer, but not everybody, you know, no risk score is perfect. Should we treat those people with these like extremely toxic and costly drugs? And what should be the evidence? And like myself, this professor at uh, San Diego, Aaron Goodman, uh, a few people, Maury Gertz from Mayo Clinic. There are a few of us who think, hey, let's slow down. You know, we shouldn't treat people with an asymptomatic precancerous condition unless we know they live longer, live better. We've never fulfilled that. But there's a huge field of experts, hundreds and hundreds, that just say, let's full steam ahead. And in fact, they're running trials with no control arms. They're just saying, let's just treat people with all of the drugs, no control arm, and winner, you know, the M protein is lower. So, I mean, that's my best, and maybe that doesn't make, that's my best summary as to what's going on in the field. The last thing is- oh. How common, yeah, go ahead. how common is this, this monoclonal gammopathy? I mean, is it a, is it like if you just went to Walmart and, and did protein analysis on a thousand 75 year old and up, I mean, how, I mean, is it, you, you would find it in Se several like, percentage points. It's very common. It's extremely common. Let me look yeah, up. So M we, M we prevalence by decade. Would, would, would we ask you about this, about this treatment with expensive therapy early Number one, I have a lot of patients who have this smoldering myeloma under the care of a hematologist. Number two, we kind of have some preventive treatments in my field that have really dubious evidence that have become established and now have become unable to uh, be questions. In fact, in fact, this week there's a there's a there's a conference dedicated to one preventive thing in my field of EP that you know is is grounded in really a terrible evidence and yet it's 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 become established as sort of a therapeutic fashion and it's it's there's there's no seminal trial that's convincing and what so is this therapy there's, um there's a, there's a therapy called left atrial appendage occlusion oh the watchman device your favorite yeah or or there's other devices now it's not just that but i mean it's just the seminal trials really don't show don't show any significant benefit over a standard of warfarin. And now it's just become this monstrosity that can't be questioned. And, 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 it's and it could even increase stroke risk. You haven't excluded that possibility. No, no. Right. And it, it well, the patients that we, the patients that it's being done on now haven't been studied. So, so they were excluded from the trials. The trials didn't show anything better than warfarin, but, but now we're, we're, we're doing it on patients who are excluded from the trial, but, this is what gets me about th this problem is that, you know, the left atrial appendage occlusion is a preventive strategy. Patients haven't had, you know, they might have something in the future. And same thing with this monoclonal gammopathy. They might get myeloma, but they 
they might not. It, it just, it, it just is so striking to me um, that we should be, you know, medicine shines when we treat sick people who are asking for our help, who have a problem and, and we can correct that problem. And, and we, we seem just in, in a, in a morally and ethically in a better place than, you know, or, or at least the bar for prevention should be way higher than it is um, for treating sick people. I think I, I have two things to say about this. One, which is really obvious and something that you and I have talked about forever is that, you know, we've just seen medicine over the last 25 years get into so much trouble um, by taking things that clearly, clearly work, you know, on sick people, right? And extrapolating it to either at-risk people or healthy people, right? And sometimes that works, most of the time it doesn't. And the only way to know is to test it and figure it out before you do that, right? And and I think, you know, PCI for stable coronary disease, the greatest example of that ever, right? Something which is incredibly effective. And if you have an MI, you know, you should have a standardized, right? Um, but if you get a little bit of chest pain when you really push yourself and you're not on maximal medicine, you know, no, you shouldn't. The other thing which... I think maybe is the hardest part about this. And I have an article which we've submitted to, you know, one of those 19th century journals, which are dying, um, but which stemmed from our debate about that colonoscopy screening trial, right? And and I thought a lot about after we argued and, you know, we looked at, at all of the different um, societies which give guidelines, you know, so is it the USTF for colon cancer? Is it the American Gastroenterologic Association? Is it the, you know, um, um, cancer groups, you know, um, and everybody comes up with different recommendations. And why is that? It, it's because we haven't really agreed on the level of data we need for, you know, instituting a therapy. <clears throat> and we don't talk about cost at all. And cost broadly said, you know, how much does the drug cost? How much of a cost to an individual is it to get this? Um, I think we need to make, we need to progress in medicine. So when we get something like this, okay, you know, do we treat MGUS or do we treat smoldering myeloma? We need to think about, okay, listen, what kind of study do we need? What's the sort of number needed to treat for what outcome? And we need people to agree on that even before we start doing the trials, right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I think you're right to put it in that context. I mean, it is sort of like the classic, the classic thing we've been talking about in medicine, which is it works, you know, to John's point, we excel when we treat six people. We're extrapolating it to a broader group of people. And okay, here's the thing where I'm always torn by. Recently, somebody sat, you know, somebody talked to me and they were like, I agree with a lot of what you say, but sometimes, but you need to put it in a way that the practicing doctor doesn't feel like they're being attacked or like the researchers don't feel like they're being attacked. So I'm going to remember that as I say this, but what am I to think? But what am I to think when you look at like myeloma, why is it different than other cancers? There's not a lot of experts. You could probably fit them all in one room. There's a hundred of them and they only do myeloma, and they have a, like total control of the field because they write all of the guidelines. In fact, in 2014, they changed the definition. Some of those precursor conditions, they added to the definition. They call it the SLIM criteria. Now new data shows that that's probably totally bogus, and they've added people who didn't need to be treated. That just came out this year. Um, th there's only 100 of them. 
They are the same people who write the, NC the guidelines for treatment. They run all the trials. And the conflict of interest is just like so rampant. Every time I, I search one of them, it's like general payments, $100,000. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, $100,000? And so, you know, obviously, I know that everyone has their heart in the right place. I don't doubt that. And I know they truly believe what they're doing. Oh, John, I was just telling them about conflict oh. of interest. Oh, sorry, sorry. I uh, Something happened to my internet. I'm back, though. That's okay. We were just saying that, I was saying there's few myeloma doctors and they have huge conflicts, like $100,000 general payments, 200,000 general payments. And part of me wants to say like, yeah, their heart's in the right place. Um, they really do what once was best for myeloma patients. I don't doubt that. On the other hand, don't they acknowledge, don't they see that like by taking so much money from the drug companies and changing the guidelines without evidence that expand treatment, like if you didn't know any better, you would think it's like a quid pro quo. I mean, it does look like you made the payment around the time of the election to keep quiet about the event. It does look like you're pretty guilty. You know, it doesn't look good. Um, but of course, you know, your heart's in the right place. It was just to protect your wife. You know, it's just as this is, she didn't want to know about it. It wasn't about the election. Um, but it doesn't look good. And and so what am I to what am I to think? That's that's my frustration. I, I have an idea. I want to float an idea. It's a it's um it's a it it gets to it gets to how we how we start these new therapies and and my idea is this and one of the one of the criticisms that I've come up with this left atrial appendage occlusion which is akin to the treating monoclonal gammopathy is that we've done 50,000 devices since the device has been approved in the US. We have a mandatory registry. So we know from this registry how many devices have been put in. And my point is, is that if we had randomized even a fraction of those patients, we, we would already know. So here I'm thinking, my idea is that when we're doing preventive things, when we're doing expensive things, when, when we're giving potentially toxic chemotherapy, it's fine. We can reimburse for it if patients are randomized. And one of the examples I use is this, this clot extraction device from the strokes. There's acute stroke device. It's called Mr. Clean Trial. You can look it up. It was done in a Northern European country. And the Northern European country, the, the editorial gave credit to the government because the government said, you can only have this device if it's part of a trial. And that's where the evidentiary base comes from clot extraction and acute stroke because there was reimbursement with randomization. And if we had a culture where new things were randomized with, with uh, where we're reimbursed with randomization, we would have answers. We would know smoldering myeloma. We would know how Watchmen, uh, uh, but we just, we just don't know. And, 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 and good intention people start doing these things. And then like you've talked about that the tailwind is, uh, is, is compensation and not just compensation, doctors who do procedures and do these things get status within their hospital and get status within societies. And so it's more than just how much is in your bank account. I, and so I, my idea is we need more, um, we need more reimbursement with randomization. Great idea. You want to say something on that, Adam? No. Okay. Yep. I, I guess the thing I would say to that is that, you know, for years I'd heard people say that randomized trials are expensive. And indeed there is a, you know, fee per person. But then a couple of years ago, I sat down with a, with a pad and I ended up writing this paper called Reliable, Cheap, Fast, and Few. 
And it basically looked at all of these studies where they're both observational data and randomized data on the same question. It found on average, there's 15 times as many people who get it done in the real world outside of a randomized study versus in the randomized study. Like when you, if you just allow things to happen. And I started to do the math on like, how much does something have to cost before it's actually cheaper to do the randomized study? And actually the number I got assuming like a $30,000 per person fee of randomized trials, which is horrific, you know, very high fee was like $8,000. And so to your point, John, it's actually cheaper. Fewer people get assigned the ultimately, you know, ineffective intervention. It's actually faster in this thing. I found it's like actually shaves off maybe half the time because in these observational studies, we're always uncertain. So we just keep, you know, doing it without really, you know, scaling it up or scaling it down and it's more reliable. So it kind of wins on all of the metrics. And to me, it's a no brainer. I think we call it coverage with evidence development in the US. And they did it also for um, a different intracardiac or sorry, intracranial device, I think. Um, I forget which one, Sampras trial, maybe. You talk about Mr. Clean is another one. I think it's Mr. Clean. I, Mr. Clean. I, I don't Mr. Know. Clean is I, Netherlands. There's another yeah, one. Well, There's a US I, one I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was Mr. Clean. But the the yeah, I mean, um, we don't have that culture. You know, we don't, we we don't. Have that framework but but look at the recovery trial we i mean we wouldn't have evidence about um uh, steroids in 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 acute covid i mean so and, and i know the nhs is set up better for it but again um i i just think the way medicine is going um we have all of these we've made so much progress that we're we're at this flat part of the curve in many of these diseases maybe not in cancer but in heart disease and if we're going to if we're going to unleash these 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 expensive therapies, invasive expensive therapies, we just have to have better 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 evidence development. And I'm just so sad. I mean, look, I I'm a I'm a I'm an electrophysiologist. I love technology. I would adopt this thing in a heartbeat if I would learn to do it in a heartbeat. I'm in the left atrium almost every week or doing a fibrillation. It'd be nothing to learn to do this. But it, it, um, I just don't. I'm not convinced by the evidence. Um, so yeah, that's my frustration with with our current state, and it's not just in cardiology; it's in all aspects of medicine. Can we close by? I wanted to ask you guys this. Um, the piece I posted today on Sensible Medicine was about evidence based medicine, and is it in decline? And um, you know, I, I reiterate, what is evidence based medicine? I think it's one: it's using the best available evidence. It doesn't have to be a randomized trial, but if you have a lot of randomized trial, you know, you'd be silly not to consider that. Two. It actually always has meant considering the patient's values and preferences. It's never paralyzed if you don't have evidence. Three, I think it does mean advocating for better evidence. Like when there's not better evidence, you say, hey, we need to do those studies. You know, we need to change our system. So that's what it means. And I think it's like misunderstood. And then in the in the criticism, like why don't we adhere to it? I list a few things and I'll and I just gonna name them off and see what you guys think of them. One, um, uh, uh, arrogance. Doctors, we knew we knew that suppressing PV, PVCs are bad. We knew about RNT phenomenon. So we knew flecainide must work. So we have that arrogance, like we really know the mechanism. It's got to save lives. The second one is anecdote. You know, I gave a patient ivermectin and it, COVID turned around. The COVID got better the moment I started giving the ivermectin. Anecdote. The third is avarice. Um, I know the patient with COVID-19, like we should always get tested before parties. And by the way, I'm the chief medical officer of the COVID testing company. You're welcome. Uh, the third was anxiety. Um, I'm very worried about my own health. 
So I need you to wear the mask. Thank you very much, because I have anxiety. The, the fourth was innovators. Um, I invented the left atrial appendage device. And actually, you know, the more you do these kind of studies that John wants, that's going to put a big buzzkill in my innovation. You know, I needed to, to sell it. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I come back to those things. What are your thoughts on, like, these are the core barriers to what we're talking about. Arrogance, the desire to innovate, anxiety, avarice, um, and anecdote. We're people. We, we love anecdotes. Adam? Boy, it's so difficult. <laughs> um, you know, because the truth is, you know, we've thought a lot about how we train doctors, right? And the fact that evidence-based medicine anywhere in the country kind of plays second fiddle to the, you know, more mechanistic learning, right? So, so every student leaves medical school thinking that drugs and interventions and surgeries work more because of their mechanics than because they've been shown to work in a randomized controlled trial. Um, and the fact is, is that most of the things we do in practice don't have the kind of evidence base that we want them to have. So we also get used to it, right? And that doesn't mean it's wrong, but yeah. maybe you just add apathy to your- Yeah, you know, apathy, you're right. We get used things. to it. That's a good one. Um, but I think, you know, and John, you, you, you know, you always say it, and it's so true that, you know, in so many places in medicine, we're on this flat part of the curve right now as far as progress. And boy, it's a great time to really like think about proving that the things we do work and then being careful about the next, the whole next generation of adoption, I would say. Um yeah, then I have a whole lecture um, that I've been given lately. Actually, I gave it at Mayo and at San Diego the week before, just about evidence-based medicine and going through a historical, going through using trials and using examples. And I, I think that the anecdote, I would tie anecdote to overconfidence and hubris and that, and and you you want your doctor to be confident, right? You want a confident doctor, but I think so much of what, we've been burned by um and it's so relevant now is just over overconfidence and 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 we 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 think um we we think we know what is right for instance i always tell the story that one of the major things that i do right now is implant these biventricular devices called crt devices for heart failure but the first time somebody asked me about this i remember i was at a scrub sink and one of the pacemaker reps asked whether i thought um, he said he read something somewhere in California. Someone was putting a lead out to coronary sinus to to correct left bundle, and that would and that would treat heart failure. And I said that's the dumbest idea. That'll never work. And now it's one of the main things that I do. It wasn't even imagined in my right. training. And so I think I think a lot of what we got burned on the PVCs and the hormone replacement therapy and the Swan Gans catheters and all that stuff is just overconfidence. And that's where evidence comes. Evidence evidence makes us not into palm readers it's it just changes us and we need evidence we can't be you know wedded to it but it's 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 really helps this overconfidence that we have it's been a great discussion i guess i just want to close with uh, one thought you know john says that he's a nobody how is he getting invited to these things i think it's not true and i think that 
there's the, the, the reason why John gets invited is the same reason why Adam and John will not be replaced with Chad GPT, which is, you know, you both are original thinkers. And that's the one thing I haven't seen it do. It can do a lot of things, formulate, can follow a lot of instructions, but it can't really look at a situation and have what I consider to be an original thought. And I think that's the most fun thing about medicine. I think it's the, it's the thing that, you know, John, you always talk about the marketplace of ideas. It's the thing that people instinctively feel. There's a reason why you're, you're you know, this week in cardiology is popular. There's a reason why Adam has his devoted following on sensible medicine. People love his stories because there's a sense of authenticity and original thought that runs through those things. And it doesn't hurt that it's written well, because <laughs> these days, sometimes you read so it's not written so well. Trust us, we know we're editors. Um, so, you know, thank you both for doing this. I think we wouldn't be able to do this with ChatGPT. We'll be back with more installments. People who like this can tweet at Sensible Medicine. If you want us to debate an issue, if you want us to talk about a topic, tweet those topics to Sensible Medicine um, and uh, subscribe, of course. And we'll be back. Hopefully we have some new things for you in the next year. So thank you both for doing this.